It's Tracy, and I am here with super producer Alex for another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Alex, how are you? Hey, Tracy, I'm doing great. Thanks for You're having me. You're doing good? Awesome. Because you know what? We have a pretty big day. Pretty big day today on the show. I, I have a couple of notes in front of me, and you know they don't tell the full story, but they just have key words to them. Mm-hmm. And I know you like to send these things just to tease me. I do. And what you've sent me about your conversation or your interview today with Gary mm-hmm. Edgington, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's back again. He's so interesting. We had him back again. That's right. I remember we did this just a couple of weeks ago, I yeah. think. And the key words that you're throwing at me here with no explanation, which is driving me nuts, insurance corruption, sniper scenes, and mm-hmm. Boston Marathon blast investigation. He has done all of that. All of it. And so he he's he's talking about he can go to a sniper scene and figure out who the sniper was. What what is the sniper scene? Well, it would be, I guess, like if you're in Iraq, you'd probably be up in a bell tower, something like that, mm-hmm. and just snipe some people. Okay. With uh, a gun. Okay. So what he does he processes those. What does that mean? Well, you go in and you figure out what went on, what kind of gun they had, who was there. A lot of times, um, a lot of times, these snipers, if they're not careful, you can get DNA from the sni- from the sniper scene. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh? Because okay. you know what they do? They leave Gatorade bottles and candy wrappers. And uh, okay, I, you know, maybe that's just something I saw in the movie, but I think they're peeing in the Gatorade bottles. Well, I, you know, what he didn't say. <laughs> Can you get DNA from that? I think so. <laughs> I think I so. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know that we need to know the answer to that question. I don't think we do. <laughs> yeah, well, this so sounds like a fascinating one. And I know it is. we've spoken it, to him before. We have. And he, every time we talk to Gary, we never stick to the, to what we're supposed to talk about and because he's so interesting. And he, he talks all about um, the Boston Marathon. In the blast scene investigation that was going on there. Sure. And then he talks about the funding chains for IED bombs in Iraq. Cause there's those bombs. They're not free turns out. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about how does the money trail through so that those things last, you know, that's interesting uh, because I probably know somebody who works on the other end of that. The other end of it. The other end of that. Somebody who works for, let's just keep this vague. Uh, I I know somebody that works for financial intelligence Mm -hmm. in one of the major worldwide uh, wire transfer companies. Oh. That you've probably heard of. And Mm -hmm. that would be that person's job is to investigate, basically follow the money trails and look for certain patterns that that person knows how to identify showing that this money is probably not going to be used for something good and it indicates something uh, other than an above board transaction and then it gets forwarded to homeland security as far as i know yeah yeah it probably gets forwarded to gary maybe that's fascinating Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. yeah so i think he is so interesting i think what we got to do we cannot chit chat around i think we just need to go talk to gary let's get in there all right it's tracy and i am back with a guest that I just love the first time. There was not enough time to talk to him the first time. Truth, lies, and cover-ups. We got Gary. It's Edgington, right? And yes. um, we he was on a few episodes ago, and there was so much content that we had to cut it off. And we so we have him back. And uh, Gary, I'm super psyched that, that you wanted to come back on the show. Hey, I had such a great time talking with you. How could I resist? It was great. Oh, it yeah, was yeah. Now, um, just as a refresher, you were a cop. In, like, like you're the real life Beverly Hills cop. Like, uh, Yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah, I was. I was uh, yeah. for about six and a half years or so. I was a real life Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. And yeah. we talked about all that, but we didn't talk about the stuff that would seem even more impressive if if it's possible um and so let's start talking about some of that stuff so counterterrorism task force like now here's the deal i've never talked to anyone in counterterrorism but i would assume that would mean stopping terrorism before it starts so how'd you go from la or long beach wherever you were and uh in beverly hills and how does how does one make that leap to counterterrorism? Because that sounds like a national, like a federal thing. Like what? T- tell us about that. 
All of that is true. Okay. okay. Um, basically, I've been interested in counterterrorism since the mid 80s when um, the LA Olympics came. And actually, I was at Beverly Hills at the time. Um, when uh, the Olympics came to Los Angeles, I became yeah. it piqued my interest. I I've been kind of casually studying terrorism for a long time. I did a thesis on terrorism uh, and its risks in Beverly Hills uh, for my baccalaureate degree. And uh -huh. so then, um, when I was working in on the intelligence squad at the Department of Justice as a special agent, mm -hmm. an opportunity presented itself, and I already had my clearances. I already had. Um, you know, all the fun stuff that from the FBI and everything, national security clearances, because I'd been working uh, government corruption cases with them uh, in FBI space. And to work in FBI space unencumbered, you have to have those clearances. Yeah. So so I said, hey, you know, I got this background. I'm interested in this. I'd really love to go over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force and take this, this slot that an agent who was retiring had occupied. Mm -hmm. And they said, sure. You're a natural fit. You've already, we don't have to wait around for you to get cleared. You're already cleared. So, you know, God bless you. So I went over there and I worked, uh, I worked on a domestic terrorism squad and um, I didn't work it as, I, I wasn't working it as much as I would have liked to because I kept getting called back to do other corruption cases and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, I did uh, a case on the, uh, incumbent insurance commissioner for the state of California. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. It was an it was a peek behind the curtain on how politically, um, politically motivated investigations occur. I was I was involved in the the meetings, the weekly briefings with the heads of the Department of Justice in California, and. Uh, was privy to their comments and conversations, and it was pretty clear what the agenda was. And, okay, let, uh, I have it wasn't to justice. <laughs> I, I have to talk to you about this because sure. uh, I may, and it looks like I may be speaking at the Association of State Insurance Commissioners. Oh, yeah. And so, what kind of trouble would an insurance commissioner get into? Well, he was accused of all manner of corruption. Mm -hmm. And um, it started out as a state case, and then it morphed into a federal case. I was not involved in the federal case. I was involved mm -hmm. on the state side. And um, on the state side, we did an exhaustive investigation and interviewed countless uh, employees and determined that we could find no fault with his actions. What he did do was he brought in some individuals that he thought were going to be um really useful in community outreach and uh you know it, 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 being more inclusive and unfortunately those individuals were unscrupulous and sort of when uh the the um they were sort of like the fox in the hen house they, they oh. basically kind of started cheating the system and doing all kinds of stuff and they got prosecuted federally and all of that and mm -hmm. everything else but but the interesting backstory about this case was he was the most popular Republican uh, politician in the state of California. He was well-known, uh, good-looking guy, former military, blah, 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 and um, he was a threat to mm -hmm. the ruling party in the state. And so this investigation appeared, mm -hmm. and we were brought in. Uh, uh, because our my boss was a Democrat, and we were brought in to do this investigation. And I can clearly remember mm -hmm. um, these individuals in meetings saying, we've got to get this guy. What can we get this guy on? We've got to get this guy. Now, as a career investigator and law enforcement officer, this is really not how you're supposed to conduct an investigation. It's supposed to be impartial, and you're supposed right. to follow the evidence where it goes, uh -huh. wherever it goes. You don't start out with an agenda and then make the evidence fit the uh, fit the agenda. Right, it's the right. other way. Mm -hmm. And um, I was appalled by that, but it was also sort of a peek behind the curtain to see how this stuff really works, and uh -huh. it was – Anybody, regardless of whatever political stripe you are, if you had been privy to these conversations, you would have been appalled, especially based on the fact that nothing untoward was uncovered by my investigation. Uh -huh. um, and yet still, how can we get this guy? How can we get now, this guy? What were they trying to get him on? Like, how, like how would, a, how would an insurance <laughs> investigator or insurance commissioner misbehave? Like, what would. Well, he was the he was 
he it's a statewide office. Yeah. Uh, he was elected uh-huh. and uh, he was in charge of the Department of Insurance for the state of California. Of course, so you can, as you might well imagine, insurance is a huge business in the state of California. Oh, yeah. So he controls he would be involved in the certification of businesses and the making of policy and rules and enforcement and a myriad of other things. It's almost like he would be he would be. Uh, sort of like a cabinet level position mm-hmm. from a standpoint of, of 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 his ability to control what was going on within the state of California within the framework of the insurance business mm-hmm. and um yeah it was it was a very very interesting investigation and uh it was also not a pretty picture when it comes to politics in California it wow. really peeled the 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 skin off of the onion on that one Huh. So then, so in a, would, would he be like any insurance commissioner, like taking bribes or wanting to look, sure. wanting them to look the other way and certain, would it be cases or certain coverage levels or it what? It could be anything. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I mean, I mean, it wasn't in this case at all right. that we were able to determine, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's conceivable that a company wants um, a sweetheart deal on regulation. And so they uh-huh. pay bribes to the insurance commissioner uh-huh. or, uh, you know, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and did something unlawful and they're subject to penalties and, you know, bribes are paid. I mean, it could be any number of things, uh-huh. you know, um, uh, that. Uh, could lead to uh, to corruption and uh, you know because I mean it's a quid pro quo kind of thing and you could right. basically set up a quid pro quo scenario for almost anything you could imagine uh-huh. you know and so that's kind of that is what is possible but once again I hasten to say it is not what I uncovered in my investigation I can I can tell you that for huh. sure interesting interesting well yeah we'll see what happens when i if i get this event <laughs> the yeah. keynote at it i don't know we're supposed to talk to him this week i think how did we get off on this i thought we were talking about well, terrorism. i just went this, off on this, this tangent is, this is how you ended up with a second show gary i didn't know it was loaded i didn't know it was loaded oh it's all good okay so back to counterterrorism, which sure. we, we've decided the california insurance commissioner was not a terrorist <laughs> no he was not not as far as i can tell so what what kind of cases were you working on in I mean because it it seems to me that terrorism is kind of like a newer word like it I, I don't associate it with the eighties but you do so um, way before yeah well okay way so before. so then what uh, and that's probably because you're just a little older than me uh uh <laughs> not which is not a dig or anything <laughs> no 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 yeah. no um, believe me okay I'm, well that 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 ship has sailed yeah. <laughs> Okay, so like, what what kind of stuff does does a counterterrorism agent do? Like, how, okay, like, like, are you bugging people? Like, how do you find your list of, of suspects? I mean, shady folks. What, t- tell us all about that. Okay, so answer the first part of your question. I worked on a domestic terrorism squad that okay. focused on individuals who are who are bent on on creative mischief that were primarily U.S. nationals. Okay. Okay. That's generally what domestic terrorism is. It's domestically inspired terrorism. Terrorism is the use of violence or the threat of violence to impact um, government and government decisions and government policy. That's what it's used for. Okay. And it's very, very old. It goes back thousands of years. I mean, you know, is Israelites uh, uh, during the Roman occupation, uh, the Romans would say they were terrorists. So, I mean, this is a tactic that goes back way, way, way in, in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so anyway, uh, with regard to how these cases develop, they come in from a variety of sources. Um, uh, these cases, when when you're working with on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, mm-hmm. you're working within the framework of the FBI and um, their investigation policies and procedures and all of that stuff. And you're sworn as a as a task force officer, you're sworn in as a as a deputy United States marshal. Uh, so you have federal arrest authority, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a state officer, you don't necessarily freely go across state lines and conduct investigations and arrests and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But as a federal officer, you can do all of those things, carry away, all that stuff. So anyway, so 
these investigations come in um, through confidential informants and tips. Um, they can come in uh, as a result of of what we call Title Three, which is uh, clandestine wiretaps, mm-hmm. and uh, they can come in through uh, uh, lawfully obtained mail covers, wherein you're looking at mail that's coming. You know that you have a lawful reason to do. You have to have a lawful reason to do these things. If you're not, then you're violating the law. Mm-hmm. Um, it could come in from other law enforcement agencies. Hey, we just arrested this joker, and um, you know, he had a bunch of paraphernalia in the back of the car. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it looks like he's an Islamist. He lives out in the middle of the desert or he's a fascist or a Nazi or whatever, whatever stripe you choose. Uh-huh. And he had a bunch of weapons or whatever. Um, or we talked to somebody who said he has a bunch of weapons out there and there's something weird about him and he had a bunch of literature and things like that. That's how these cases develop. And so then you start building up. Uh, the investigation begins with that that seed, and from there you start to develop a package and a picture of who this individual is, and is there actually criminal activity that justifies opening a criminal investigation, mm-hmm. which is a step that has to be taken to conduct a full investigation. And once that, if that if that is satisfied, then you start conducting your investigation through, you know, lawful methods, surveillance. Uh, these other things I discussed, if there's if there's lawful reason mm-hmm. to conduct uh, a wiretap or a mail cover or monitoring computer traffic, any of these things, all of these things are, are lawful methods of and very effective methods of collecting evidence. Um, and um, they're used in domestic terrorism cases and international terrorism cases. So um, and you basically take this case uh, to the point where if you can if you can get an indictment, you you know, you're involved with the the United States attorney's office and you seek an indictment. Uh, If you get an indictment, then an arrest warrant is issued and the individual is taken into custody. You serve search warrants, collect evidence, build your case and uh, and then, you know, take it to trial or hopefully they plead out. Most of the time they plead. Now, what uh, what specific cases did you get uh, get? I don't know if it's get to or have to (laughs) work on what. uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Yeah, Um, only only in um, general sense, Uh, domestic cases. uh, I was involved on the periphery of uh, a domestic terrorism case involving some extremists who had planned to plant a bomb at a. at a at a meeting place of a rival group um and um their plot was foiled uh before they had a chance to plant the bomb mm-hmm. but in the process of doing that uh investigation the bomb making materials etc were recovered and the individuals were prosecuted also was involved um in an investigation uh concerning individuals who were part of an extremist uh, Islamist group who had um, uh, facilities out in the desert and were conducting all kinds of uh, you know weird things and and had connections to overseas. They're operating in the United States. Most of them are American nationals. Um, so it's kind of it, it's a domestic terrorism case with international implications because yeah. they have connectivity to overseas. Major uh, Major Nadal is an American national. You remember the individual who shot up the soldiers at Fort Hood? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. He was an American national, but he was in contact with uh, individuals overseas. Oh, so it was really? a domestic. It was a domestic terrorism case, but uh, through their investigation, they were able to link to him to, uh, you know, individuals, Islamists overseas who uh, you know, he was communicating with. And um, there are several other cases like that that have been, you know, in the news uh, over the years that were domestic individuals who um, the the Boston, uh, the two idiots in Boston who, who uh, you know, set off the bomb during the Boston Marathon. Yeah, they had well, that marathon's ties. coming up in a, in a month again. Exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my son happened to be going to school and lived on the street where that thing happened. Oh. Uh, so, you know, 
uh, it was amazing. It was a, uh, it was an amazing crime scene. I went out there a couple of days later oh, you did? Uh, to visit. Yeah. To visit with him, not, not an official uh -huh. business. And I uh, was there when they uh, killed one of the crooks and arrested the other one. Uh, I was listening to the radio and it was, it was, uh, it was quite an interesting uh, situation. But anyway, those are domestic terrorism cases. Mm -hmm. They had international connections, but they're domestic terrorism cases. Now. Um, okay. Let's, let's go back to the Boston, uh, Mm -hmm. uh marathon so okay so here you are you have all this training and you show up and just for a family visit right so what do you actually do i mean do you just stroll over there and be like don't mind me i'm just looking around or, or do you show a badge and be like hey you know let me know if you need anything or like what do you do those guys are so busy everybody's running around with their hair on fire the last thing they need is some joker from la walking up to uh -huh. them and saying hey I'm uh, from LA and uh, you know, I just thought, well, what's going on? You yeah. Know? Well, I figured you know what? so, but I had to check. No. I had to check. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, if I had something legitimate to tell them, if I had seen something, you better believe I would be all over it. Uh -huh. But I saw nothing. Uh, you know, I mean, basically I was just there to visit with my son uh -huh. and, uh, and happened to be there when all of this went down, you know, walk past the crime scenes and all of that stuff. Uh, and it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Now, what'd you uh, notice? Like what, what made it amazing? Was it that they blocked off so much space or was, were they doing something where you're like, oh, that's new or like what, what stuck out? Well, um, the first thing that was amazing was the amount of resources that were there was incredible. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't surprising because the FBI has the ability to throw hundreds and hundreds of agents at a crime scene, mm -hmm. and they are very, very good at finding every scintilla of evidence that, that is possible to find. That's how uh -huh. they that's how they broke the Pan Am the um, the Lockerbie case, the Pan Am Lockerbie bombing mm -hmm. um, was through the uh, the tiniest bits of evidence they were able to figure out that uh, the bomb was inside a boombox, mm -hmm. and the boombox uh, was purchased in X, Y, and Z, and got on the plane in Athens and all this other stuff. So that's what they're doing, and I've taken bomb post-blast investigation courses and it's uh -huh. quite amazing how much evidence can be derived from searching a, a blast scene you can huh. pretty much find all the a lot of the bits and pieces from the bomb wiring uh blasting cap pieces pieces of the bomb case uh timing uh devices mm -hmm. that stuff people think that that stuff is completely obliterated and in a typical bomb blast it isn't it actually if you look hard enough you can find an amazing amount of material um from a a, a bomb blast uh you know uh, there are certain types of explosives that will burn everything to a cinder. Uh, so some of that stuff is going to be hard to find, but you can still find bits and pieces because some of that stuff is going to get blown out of the way. Uh -huh. And uh, you'd be shocked at how much you can find. Huh. So if someone was going to dismantle a bomb, and I just have to ask this, <laughs> is it like it is on the movies where they're like, okay, there's a black wire and there's a red wire and we got to clip one of them and maybe it'll you go off. But like, how does that work? I mean, what's uh -huh. the reality there? Well, the reality is the guys doing that have nerves of steel, and I couldn't be one. Uh -huh. um, I went to a class on how to investigate things, not how to dismantle them. <laughs> I, I mean, we put them together. We put mock-ups right. together uh -huh. and then blew them up to show that you can find all of this stuff. Huh. But I was not involved in any sort of explosive ordnance disposal, which is what that's called, e uh, Okay. Got and um, those individuals, I've worked with a, several of them, and um, they're remarkable people who have uh, amazing skills, and it's extremely difficult uh, school to go through. Uh -huh. It's extremely technical because you have to understand, um, you know, electrical engineering and chemical uh, yeah. uh, compositions and engineering and physics and all kinds of stuff because you're dealing with all these elements. Most bombs are triggered. Their triggering devices, their initiators are usually electrical uh, in one way or another. Mm -hmm, sure. um, and then, of course, there are radio devices if it's command detonated. Uh, you know, somebody uses a radio or a cell phone to transmit a, a, a signal that triggers the blasting cap that detonates the explosive. Um, and then, of course, the analysis of the explosives and what kinds of explosives and what they'll do. There's a myriad of 
there's a myriad of explosives. Everybody thinks, oh, okay, C4. Well, there's about a hundred other types of explosives besides uh -huh. C4 out there. Semtech comes to mind. That was a very popular explosive uh, used uh, during the battle days of terrorism in the uh, in the in the 80s, I think it came out of Czechoslovakia, huh. and it was harder to detect than some of these other explosives. Um, there's just it's an extremely complicated uh, uh, field of of of, uh, of work, and the individuals that do it are uh, have nerves of steel and have my undying respect and gratitude. I couldn't do it. There's no way. <laughs> wow. Okay. So so back at the at the Boston Marathon visit. Uh, would they just have hundreds of people combing around? Is that what you saw or what? What's yeah, well, well, basically, the first off, the crime scene, what we call the, what what's called the seat of the okay. blast is identified. That's where the bomb actually detonated. Mm -hmm. And that would have been um, on the street, on yeah. the, uh, you know, on the sidewalk where that mm -hmm. bomb was placed. OK, that whole area around there is sealed off. Mm -hmm. And the uh, evidence ERT, evidence response um, uh -huh. team from the FBI and the post-blast investigators from the FBI are going through that place with a fine-tooth comb, trying to find any shroud, any tiny shred of evidence mm -hmm. that still might be there. And they're looking everywhere, places mm -hmm. you would never imagine they're looking. Like like where? Like like what would I know? Walls. Like walls. In, in the walls. Could, you could be look. You need to look at the walls because pieces could be embedded in the wall. A oh. piece of wire, uh, a transistor, something that could be crucial to the investigation. Because remember, it's flying at high velocity. Yeah, when the bomb yeah. detonates. It's um, I mean, some of these explosives burn at at twenty six thousand feet per second. So it's it's burning. It blows super fast. So these items are are flying at 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 super high speed and. Um, they become embedded in walls. They become embedded in trees. They anything and that stuff can be flying anywhere. Think of it like almost like a shotgun blast, where the pellets yeah. fly everywhere. Mm -hmm. you, it's kind of the same thing in a way. And um, so they're looking all over the place, and they're looking at cars. They're looking at everything around there. They're they're examining. You know, uh, they're looking at at videotape. Um, from surveillance cameras, they're talking to witnesses. They're they're canvassing neighborhoods to find out who was there. Did anybody see anything? You know, because every little bit of that evidence is going to show. Like the surveillance tapes are the ones that that help them identify those two idiots. Mm -hmm. And um, because you see them walking around, everybody else is having a good time, and they're walking around with scowls on their faces. Yeah, they well, have that, like a little bit of a mission. Yeah, exactly. And they did have a mission, mm -hmm. and uh, and they acted. You know, they kind of had that look. And um, based on my recollection of viewing the tapes, you know, it's been a while, but I can remember looking at them and going, OK, those guys are up to no good. Uh, you know, that's pretty obvious, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and of course, they were, you know, they had the bomb in a backpack and, you know, the rest is history. The other thing you asked me, what else was it? Uh, did you find astounding about it was, yeah. well, um, the city of Boston. One of the most important cities in the United States was shut down completely. Nobody in, nobody out. Huh. Oh, really? Yeah. And I found that to be as a counterterrorism guy and a career law enforcement officer, uh -huh. um, I found that to be pretty offensive because, because when you do something like that, you have given the victory to the crooks. When you do that, if you go to Israel and a bomb goes off, mm -hmm. they clear the scene 30, 40 minutes, and it's back to normal. They are denying the enemy a victory. We gave the enemy in that case. Those two little guys shut uh -huh. down the city of Boston, one of the most important cities in the United States and in American history. Uh -huh. They shut that city down. Okay. So, and you can so that's your, a that's a victory for those guys. That's absolutely, absolutely. I guarantee you, at some point in time, those guys bragged and high fived over the fact that they had shut down the city of Boston. Huh. I guarantee you that. Uh -huh. I what we we had tried. I want I wanted to do that day was take my son out to Lexington and Concord, and we couldn't get a rental car because we we couldn't take the the subway or any place out to uh, to mm -hmm. the airport. So finally, we hitched a ride with somebody else, and we got out to the airport, and then. Somehow we got, you know, we did our thing and we got back into the city and we got back into the city and I'm walking down the street, with my son, and I hear this, I walk past this police officer and I hear radio traffic uh, on the radios, uh, 
it was um, something like shots fired, shots fired, which of course immediately my ears perk up. Yeah, yeah, because you're that's used to listening for that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, listen to that for 30 years. I yeah. mean, you know, that's a that's like, you know, that's like a dinner bell to a dog. Uh-huh. And and then you hear I heard shots fired, shots fired. And then um, uh, all units hold your position. So that tells me that, first off, obviously bullets are flying. And secondly, they have cordoned off some spot where the sus where they have the suspects hold held up. Now, I don't know if it's these crooks or not. I suspect right. it was. Uh-huh. And so then anyway, we during dinner, we're watching the television and that's when all of this stuff unfolds and you start mm-hmm. to see, you know, all these things happening and the cops are heading out the door from the restaurant. And it was just like so that was an interesting thing to be kind of watching this as it unfolds, uh, you know, in that city. And uh, it was it was it was amazing. But I really felt strongly. Now, there will be other people that say, well, you don't understand. You know, they made that decision. I'm a, I'm looking at it from a standpoint of when you give bad guys a victory, it inspires uh-huh. more to do that huh. and do the same kind of thing. Uh-huh. And like I said, if you look at if you look at the Israeli model uh, or the British model. Um, they certainly had to deal with terrorism um, during uh, during the troubles, uh, during the, the you know, the, the the problems in Northern Ireland and in London. I happened to be in London the day that that a bank was blown up in, uh, in within the old city of London. And I was huh. there and people were walking around and people were quiet. And there was a lot of you know, there was a lot of things going on and whatnot, but nobody was running around with their hair on fire. And the city of London did not shut down because of that. I assure you, they did not shut down. And like I said, I thought that that was that was really a bad call on the part of the governor of the state of Massachusetts to shut down the principal city, the capital of the state of Massachusetts, to shut it down because of these two little twerps. And I know damn good and well they were high-fiving each other and saying, hey, we shut the city down. We shut the city down. I'm sure that one guy who's still alive, you know, in prison is probably going, well, I shut the city of Boston down. Well, yeah, he's over here in Supermax in in Florence, uh, our our big fancy (laughs) – prison i've driven um, past that place <laughs> well yeah a friend a not friend much of, there <laughs> a friend of a friend is an fbi person and she walked by apparently he was showering and he d- wasn't very impressive so um no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, true story true story well there you okay. go well so, you know obviously he was making up for other problems i think so. so i think so okay so let's talk about how did you end up in iraq well um you know uh let me let me basically say that um fast forward to um well uh january 2001 i get promoted into internal affairs worked internal affairs till september of 2001 maintained a liaison role with the joint terrorism task force kept my clearances alive but really was not involved uh in much uh but was still kind of in a liaison role then 9-11 9-11 happens. A few days later, um, the, well, immediately the attorney general uh, gets together and says, we got to do something about this. We need to create some kind of counterterrorism um, uh, uh, unit within mm-hmm. uh, the framework of the Department of Justice. And um, a few days later, uh, uh, they decided to create task regional task forces throughout California and I was asked to stand up the task force in Los Angeles, which is a multi-agency task force with detectives from several different agencies and investigators from other state agencies. And uh, my jurisdiction initially was from the San Diego County line, the northern San Diego County line, all the way to Monterey. And then they created a uh, Orange County task force. So I got rid of Orange County, which was great because that's way too far away. But I still had Mon- Monterey for a while. And um, and so we did a lot of investigations. We were all um, – I was still embedded with the Joint Terrorism Task Force and because terrorism is the FBI's responsibility. Okay. They, they have the – um, the judicial, the 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 statutory authority to investigate these cases, and I felt like um, this is not something that we should be running around doing stuff on our own and not keeping the FBI in the loop. So I not only maintained my position within the Joint Terrorism Task Force and informed them about everything that we had and gave them everything we had, but also took cases from them 
and work them up and help them mm -hmm. uh, decide what they wanted to do with them. But I also embedded my task force members into the Joint Terrorism Task Force, including intelligence analysts, so that we all had a symbiotic relationship. And when I retired in 2008, um, it was an incredible uh organization, uh, very inclusive. You could walk in that office and you wouldn't be able to tell who's an FBI agent and who was a task force officer. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, it was a very collegiate environment. It was a great environment. Went to training all over the place. Our, our people worked with their people and it was just a great experience. First year and a half, post 9-11, it wasn't so great. It was still kind of the old FBI. We're the FBI. You're not. We're not going to really share much with you. Uh -huh. But one day, um, the uh, assistant director in charge in Los Angeles said, OK, enough of that. We're going to put people in there who play well with the locals. And they did. And the atmosphere changed overnight. And it was fantastic. It, they did an amazing job. Can't say enough great things about what they did. They mm -hmm. really did an amazing job. And so now, um, 2008 rolls around time for me to retire i'm looking for a retirement gig i see this opportunity to go to work uh as an embedded advisor uh overseas in either iraq or afghanistan and um i thought well that could be interesting you know i was never in the military so it'd be an education there uh -huh. i'd be work i'd work counterterrorism all this time so now this would be an opportunity to kind of crawl into the belly of the beast and see where it comes from yeah and and so um, I was hired, uh, and I was hired in a manage in a mid management level position, and I had about uh, ten or fifteen guys that were embedded with different army units in southern Iraq that reported to me. Now, and, who, who was your employer though? Was it like a Blackwater thing or like what? Well, it was a government. I'm. I don't really want to say the name of the company, okay, uh, okay. or the organization. You don't I should have to. say, okay. but um, it was a it was a an entity that had a contract with with the government. Okay. Okay. And um and so um. Anyway, so I was embedded um, with the Army in an improvised explosive device uh, defeat cell. And, of course, IEDs mm -hmm. are the bane of uh, modern warfare, especially urban warfare. Uh, you know, they're planted in cities, cars, people, yeah. you know, uh, all roads, all that stuff. So, um, you know, my role was to provide um, – investigative and law enforcement experience in the areas of counterterrorism and organized crime. And the reason for the organized crime aspect of this is um, the IED chain is really <clears throat> kind of similar to an organized crime kind of thing. There is a whole food chain. There's a funding, uh, there's really? a funding process and a targeting process, the manufacture process and the planning process and all of that. And, um, and there's a source of funds uh, and without the money, uh, the bomb doesn't get planted. And a lot of these bombs were not necessarily targeting coalition forces. They were targeting other tribes or rival entities. They were settling old scores that were maybe 50, 100, 200 years old. Really? Um, there was a lot of that going on. That's what caused in the beginning, of, uh, in, the, in the immediate uh, moments after the, um, the fall of Baghdad and the, and the capitulation, uh, you know, of Baghdad and, and the cessation of major military hostilities, uh -huh. um, we kind of foolishly sort of disbanded the army, and the army was one of the only institutions in Iraq that was respected by the people, and we put the Iraqi police uh, in charge, and the Iraqi police are not respected by uh, the public, and they're not trusted mm. by the public. So what happened was things sort of degenerated, especially in Baghdad, and you had all of these, these warring factions, and they, they basically – it was like – it was like Tombstone or Deadwood. It was like, you know, okay, now it's on, game on, and they just started killing each other. And then we're, of course, trying to get involved and separating the two parties, and our people start getting killed, and then it just turns into a complete mess from that point. So, um, uh, yeah, so so I go over there, um, and I um, uh, it give them – the benefit of what experience I have, uh, because these cases are also 
being prosecuted in a rocky court. So there's rules of evidence, there's investigative techniques and things like that. And the army is not necessarily, especially ground soldiers, certainly not army CID, but ground soldiers are not necessarily super hip to all of this, all these these subtleties of, a, of uh, investigation, interrogation, uh, evidence collection and things like that. So that was those were some of the things that I was involved in is putting together procedures for that. I wrote a I wrote a paper on processing uh, sniper scenes, um, how to conduct. Uh, and you basically I was using my civilian um, experience in in how to process a shooting scene into and transferring that experience into um the combat zone uh situation and also the other thing i did was i came up with uh, with assistance of my partner who ultimately left um came up with um a procedure for the seizure of of funds uh asset forfeiture like what we do in the united states with with uh organized crime or uh drug trafficking organizations we take their money which really hurts them Big yeah. time. And uh, as I told you earlier, if you take money uh, out of the equation uh, on the on the chain of of planning IEDs, you got a problem. The bomb maker, who's one of the most highly sought after individuals in the chain, doesn't get paid. So there's no bomb. OK, um, so we're going to back up here because you mm -hmm. skipped over something cool, I think. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Processing sniper scenes. Is that the same? Like, is that kind of the same thing as what was going on in Boston? Like processing the scene that way? Or is there something unique about a sniper incident that sets it apart from a regular investigation? <clears throat> yes. Uh, a sniper, a sniper scene is going to have multiple crime scenes. Uh -huh. A bombing scene like the Boston case uh -huh. has a primary crime scene which is the seat of the blast right and then it may have other little ones ancillary ones but a sniper scene you have the sniper hide it could be 20 yards away it could be 50 yards it could be 100 yards away so the so the first thing you have to do you have the crime scene where the victim is shot okay or victims are shot yeah okay and there's a certain amount of evidence that can be collected and there's certain things you can you can discern from the position of the victims when they were shot and things like that the sound if you can hear the sound if a suppressor wasn't used if you can hear the sound you can determine which direction uh the shot came from but you have to discern where the sniper hide was where was the sniper shooting from yeah and once you identify that scene that becomes another crime scene because there is going to be evidence at that crime scene i.e spent cartridge cases uh -huh. Uh, candy wrappers, water bottles, maybe items of clothing. Um, who knows what they left there, uh -huh. uh, depending on how stealthy they were, how disciplined they were. Um, all of those things, including uh, expended uh, am, you know, shell casings, possibly could contain DNA evidence. Oh, so there's DNA on the shells now. I yeah, mean, well, I guess yeah, it's not well, – I never heard of it. Yeah, you can – when you touch things – yeah, microscopic bits of skin come off of your uh -huh. off view, and stay on top of these items. And so, we had DNA labs over there. We had crime um, evidence labs over there, crime labs over there, and um, the evidence was processed there just like it would be processed in Los Angeles or mm -hmm. any other place. And um, that's. That's why these things are important. If you can, if you can identify the sniper hide, there's a very good possibility you're going to possibly identify the suspect, because chances are there may be candy, candy wrappers or water bottles. All of those are going to have DNA evidence on them. So snipers, okay? it sounds like snipers eat a lot of candy. Well, if they're undisciplined, <laughs> they do. If they're undisciplined, they'll leave stuff like that. Huh. If they're seriously trained and disciplined, they won't. Uh huh. Right. They won't. Um, but if they are mopes who were given a sniper rifle and, you know, a few hours of training, um, then, yeah, they might do that. They might be that dumb to do that or they don't know what DNA evidence is. They don't care. They don't you know, they have no idea. You mm -hmm. can also get fingerprints off of shell casings. Oh, right. Um, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, and also. Um, there is physical evidence on the shell casing and, you know, um, there are extractor marks and bolt face marks on the shell casing that 
are identifiable and you, you pick up those shell casings and then say, for instance, you had another incident where similar shell casings are recovered. You send those to the lab. They compare the two and they go, holy crap, both of these guns were fired with the same weapon. So now you have two incidents Oh boy. Um, uh -huh. and you've established now you have two incidents uh, involving the same weapon, probably, which means also the same suspect, most uh -huh. likely. Right, right. For so, sure. Huh. Yeah. OK, so then. OK, so let's go to the next thing that we were kind of talking about how to seize funds. OK, so we know you got to get the money because the money is starting the train of right. a problem. Right. What? OK, so given how, how much of these funds are you looking for cash or how much of these funds are electronic? I mean, what's going on with crypto? What, uh, like, tell me about that. There was none of that going on that I'm aware of as far as crypto. Okay. Uh, Not at the time, but pro mostly cash. Okay. I I I would sh I would be shocked based on how austere and you know difficult things were in Iraq for the United States Army to communicate sometimes. Uh, I would be shocked if anybody was doing wire transfers that was involved. Now it's certainly possible. I certainly most of what I've what I'm aware of had to do with the seizure of actual cash huh. and um, and uh, a place would get hit, uh, you know, by uh, a, a military unit. Um, they'd find, uh, you know, a suitcase full of cash. And so what are we going to do with this? So we bring it back, uh, you know, and then what what happens to it after that? Well, <clears throat> what I advocated was what we advocated was let's. Because the laws in Iraq were – this is going to be a shock to you – extremely draconian when it came to this stuff. If you could establish um, – uh, and I don't remember what the threshold was, but it was pretty low. I want to say probable cause that the individual was involved in some facet of an act of terror. You could take pretty much everything that they uh -huh. had, including – you know, I mean everything. And, um, you know, you and you would not need a great do you need something from the Iraqi uh, Central Criminal Court uh, to approve it. Uh -huh. But the <clears throat> threshold was not high, not like it is in the United States. It was difficult huh. in the United States compared uh -huh. to this. Uh -huh. And the laws were very, very um, serious. And uh, so. You know, working within that framework, we prepared a white paper that was distributed, um, you know, that advocated and here, you know, the procedures involved and advocated for the seizure of assets uh, pursuant to a terrorism investigation. So, OK, so tell me this and, th and this will go for any, I think, seizure over here, too. You show up, you're a regular guy, you're making money but not suitcase full of cash money how, how much of that gets sneaked out like in the pockets of investigators i mean wouldn't that just be a little too tempting i mean what's the reality there uh, well i mean when i worked major narcotics um i saw suitcases full of cash uh-huh you know suitcases full of 20s um and uh i cannot imagine that happening uh, we had very, very, very clear procedures on the handling uh -huh. of cash, uh -huh. and nobody was – once it was discovered, it was – nobody ha was ever there by themselves. There was also somebody else okay. there, okay. and supervisors were involved. Now, does that mean that that never happened? It probably did happen. It certainly never happened in my presence, and I uh -huh. never knew of – I never heard of a situation where it happened. Uh -huh. Now, um, it's certainly possible that it has happened. Uh, you know, I'm aware of instances where it has happened um, with other entities, um, but it is not something in my personal experience that I have ever seen. And I'm glad of that because when something like that happens, you know, when the you know when the internal affairs investigation begins, everybody's a suspect. And yeah. having been an investigator on an internal affairs cases, it's a not a pleasant position to be in when you are sitting across the table from the IA investigators. It's not right pleasant. now. Okay. So you, you were in Iraq and we're again, Gary, this has happened and we're sort of bumping up on being out of time and we have a lot more to talk about, but let's talk about your book because your okay. book, it, which is an, it's a novel, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it was, 
like heavily influenced by your time in Iraq. Precisely. It was inspired. Tell us about it. uh, Outside the Wire was inspired by my experiences in uh, California law enforcement, uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and uh, my experiences in Iraq as an embedded uh, advisor. And uh, it's a thriller. Uh, it's it's best described as a, uh, a, a as the title suggests, a novel of murder because it begins with two murders. Oh, love, a love interest uh, ensues between my my two uh, principal protagonists, uh-huh. a army doctor, a uh, female army doctor, and uh, a grizzled uh, retired LAPD detective lieutenant who, strangely enough, has a similar background to me. Um, oh, weird. That is so weird. Who would so have odd. thought that? So odd. But I hasten to add, there was no army doctor while I was over there. There was no none of that going on. But anyway, um, and uh, of war. And it is a tale okay. of war too. There's certainly lots of war uh, combat uh, involved. It's a it's a very very fast paced uh, book. Um, so many people have told me they've read it in one sitting uh, or had difficulty putting it down, uh, and uh, uh, that gratifies me. I mean the the uh, the the feedback I get from people who have read the book um, is so positive, has been so positive that I've actually decided and am now working on a sequel to this book that takes place two years later, involving many of the same characters. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so where can people get this book? It is available at Barnes and Noble and uh, or on Barnes and Noble online and Amazon online okay. outside the wire. A Tale of Murder, Love, and War, or a, a, a novel of Murder, Love, and War. And um, it's available in a couple of bookstores, uh, one here in Charlotte, Park Road Books, and one in London, uh, mm-hmm. Hatchard's Bookstore on Piccadilly and Mayfair. Wow. And, okay. Uh, and um, so, yeah. Well, I tell you what, people have a job to go out and get that. Um, yes. And so here's what we need to do, Gary. <clears throat> We're going to have, to have you back again. <laughs> we get off on these tangents okay. that are so interesting. And I we apologize. haven't even got to the cool stuff yet. <laughs> well, some of that was pretty cool, right? <laughs> no, it was all cool. That's the thing. But it's nothing that you wrote up for me to talk about. <laughs> so, okay. So, okay. I guess I'm a blabbermouth. I gotta... you, no, it's awesome. I mean, this, is, this is so cool. Okay. So we're going to have you back. And okay. um, thank you for coming on Truth oh, Cover Ups. My pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know how the time goes by so quickly, but it certainly did. It was, seems like this was over in a, in a blink of an eye. I know. I was so. looking at the clock. I was like, okay, we got to stop. All right. So thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.